Well, I'd encourage you this morning to turn with me once again to uh, the book of Nehemiah. This is our fourth sermon in our study of the book of Nehemiah. And uh, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 3 of, uh, of this great historical drama. We will be taking a break from Nehemiah next week. I will not be preaching at the joint service. I will be part of it, but not preaching. Uh, so we'll take a break next week. Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning. I know that there are some visitors with us this morning. We're glad once again, that you're here. But because there are visitors, and because I know you, members of Ascension, uh, because you're like me, you need to be reminded often of where we've been. I want to just briefly review where we've been. Nehemiah is our main character in this historical book, in this historical drama. He's a man who lived in ancient Persia, uh, around 400 in the 400s BC, he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he was a man that we might say, as was said of Esther, he was a man chosen by God for such a time as this. For God's city, the city of Jerusalem, lies in disrepair. God's people are disgraced, and God's name is not being revered as a result, and so God raises up Nehemiah and chooses him to stand in the gap, so to speak, to stand in the gap for God's people, and God gives him this heart, this burden for his name, a burden and a passion that I hope has already pointed you in your hearts and in our thinking, and I've tried to encourage us in this way, a heart and a passion that has pointed us to Jesus. And his passion for the Lord's name. The one whom this whole story is headed towards. The one whom all our stories are centered in. The person of Jesus. And Nehemiah points, inadequately yes, but he points to that greater Redeemer. That greater intercessor that's coming. And Nehemiah is an extraordinarily gifted man. He's been a model of dependent prayer. He's been a model of what it means to walk by faith. And and that's kind of where we've been in these last two chapters, in these first two chapters of Nehemiah. Now in our story, we're to the point in the story where Nehemiah has arrived in the city of Jerusalem. He's surveyed the damage that has been done. He has cast a vision to the people of God, and then it is with the words of chapter 2, verses 18, ringing in our ears, and I'll read them to you in just a moment. It's with those words ringing in our ears that we then begin chapter 3. Nehemiah two eighteen says, and I told them, this is Nehemiah speaking, I told them of the hand of my God that had been on me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And now Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's listen as I read it. It's long. Bear with me. It's got a lot of Hebrew words in it. Listen as I read. Nehemiah chapter 3. 
This is God's Word. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baaneah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshalam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshanai. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeah and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumpha, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah and the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, not our Nehemiah, a different Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half of the district of Belzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Reum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Azer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, 
repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoyites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as as far as the wall of Ophel. Everybody with me? Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what do we do with this? Thanks for bearing with me in that list. I know it's long. I don't read names like that every day. It took me quite a while to even fumble that way uh, through the passage. This is one of those passages in God's Word that we so easily just run right through, right? Or if we're reading through the Scriptures in our devotions, we might even just skip over it. I mean, it feels like, in a sense, that we've just read something that ought to be in an appendix in the back of our Bibles. And there ought to be just a star there next to the number three, and we can go back and read this if we want to. Some commentators don't even talk about chapter three. They actually skip the passage in their commentary. One called this list of names intrusive. Another described this list in chapter 3 as a colorless memorandum of assignments. Well, you've already discovered that we're not going to ignore it this morning. We're not just going to read it. We're going to talk about it. What does it have to say to us? It is God's Word. It's here for a purpose. And I believe it can challenge us this morning. You know, it was just over two months ago that we in this nation commemorated the attacks of 9-11. 
September 11th, 2001, and I don't know if you watched any of the ceremonies or the TV specials that were on uh, commemorating that awful day in our nation's history, but, but Anna and I caught a few of them, and there were several ways that you could hear about the people who lost their lives on September 11th, 2001. One was to listen to those ceremonies where their names were simply read, right? Hundreds of names, thousands of names read in a long, continuous list. And while I'm sure that the reading of those names was, was powerful, particularly for the families who, who those names represented or those names were connected to, for me, It wasn't that powerful just to hear the names. Now the emotions, the the understanding of what went on that day came as two things occurred. One is I was reminded again of the magnitude of that tragedy. Yes, that's the first thing. But secondly, as I was brought into the lives of these families as the names were not just names, but they were unique lives lost, lives with stories. That's what I want to try to do this morning in some small way. We certainly need to see the forest, so to speak. right? God is doing something grand here, something that encompasses the whole Scriptures. He's preserving a people for Himself that the Messiah may come Jesus to redeem the world. But I don't want us to miss this morning the trees. I want us to see some of the trees. For this passage is more than just a mindless list. These are real, historical people. These, we might say, are profiles in God's work. Maybe you watched a show called Profiles of 9-11. These are profiles of God's work. And so there's really just one truth that I want us to center our thoughts and our hearts on for a few minutes. I've been talking over and over again in the book of Nehemiah about how this book is a book about God's work. Yes, it tells us other things. Nehemiah teaches us a lot, teaches us a lot about leadership, but ultimately this is a book about God's work. God's work in providing a man to intercede. God's work in giving that man a heart and a vision and gifts for the task. The trust to walk in faith. To step out in faith and do what God had called him to do. And in this period of history, as we read the book of Nehemiah, what's God's work? It's a wall. God's work is a wall. That's not our work today. What's our work today? Our work today is the church. Living stones, the Scripture says. Men and women and children called to repentance and faith. Called to live and proclaim that message to the world. Called to be built up into a spiritual house that proclaims the great name of our God. And so, Church of Jesus Christ, God reminds you this morning of this truth. That God's work needs everyone. 
God's work requires everyone. God's work is not for the few. God's work is not for the gifted. It's not for the full-time paid staff. God's work is for everyone. You see, in this massive list of names, there's one interesting name that's missing. The name of Nehemiah. And I know you heard of Nehemiah, but it's not our Nehemiah. It's not the Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is not even in this list. And up until this point, the book, the Scriptures, have been almost exclusively focused on what God is doing through Nehemiah, the great and gifted leader of God's people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but here in chapter 3, Nehemiah is not around. At least we don't see him around. He fades to the background. He's in the, he's in the shadows. He, he's no doubt laid the groundwork for what is happening in chapter 3. He has cast the vision. He's organized the team. But now, the work is God's people's work. The recognition is for God's people. And it's a work that includes everyone. You see, what I want us to see this morning is that this chapter is a picture of the church. Nehemiah chapter 3 is a picture of the church. It's an instructive, encouraging picture of the body of Christ. We can't possibly go through all these names. It wouldn't be profitable to go through all these names, but let's look 9-11-esque. Let's look at some profiles in God's work, in a work that includes everyone. Now, the way that our text is built, the way it is described, is the scene moves counterclockwise around the city of Jerusalem. We kind of start at the northern end and move counterclockwise around the city as the gates are described, as the surrounding topography is described. And it's the kind of thing that is very interesting to archaeologists. It gets archaeologists very excited. It doesn't get me excited. What gets me excited and what I want to get you excited about is the names and the stories behind the names. God's people who are doing God's work. So let's start with Eliashib. Eliashib, he's the first guy mentioned, right? Chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest. It's great that we start with Eliashib for a number of reasons. Because, first of all, if we're to take the recounting here in order of importance, you know, what is the priority in this back-breaking work that God's people are about to begin undertaking? Well, the first priority is the sheep gate. The sheep gate. Now, this gate was situated, it is thought, at the northern part of the wall of Jerusalem, close to the temple of God. And why was it called the sheep gate? Because it was the gate where the sheep came through to be taken to this temple to be sacrificed as worship. And this is where we begin. From the start... The worship of God, the restoration of the structures of God was the priority 
for God's people in doing the work. And, and we even find this account of the priests consecrating this long section, this particular section, even way before the wall is completed. It's not even begun to be completed, and already the priests are dedicating it. They're consecrating it. Now, there'll be a big celebration. There'll be a big dedication at the end of our book, at the end of our study, when the wall is completed. But here at the beginning, the priests are already consecrating this northern part of the wall. Why are they doing this? I think they're underscoring the significance that this work is religious work. This wall isn't just a wall. This is to restore Yahweh. This is to restore His house. This is to restore His city, His people, His honor, His name. This is God's work. And so we start with Eliashib, the high priest. But the other thing to notice about Eliashib in this first profile of God's work is that he's the high priest. The high priest priest. He's the highest religious office among the Jews. Highly respected, well-trained, religiously minded. And where is he? Here he is in his blue jeans, in his overalls, doing the work of the Lord, building a gate, setting its doors, You see, with Eliashib, the high priest, there's no air of elitism. There's no professionalism that prevents him from getting his hands dirty. God's work is everyone's work. Eliashib knows that, and it needs his attention. Even if it isn't in his line of expertise. In the same category of Eliashib is Melchijah. Melchijah is mentioned jumping down to verse 14. Jumping down to verse 14. Melchijah, son of Rechab, he is a ruler himself. He's not a high priest, but he's the ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. And he too is getting his hands dirty. But he's not just working with dirt. Notice where he is working. He's working at the dung gate. The place where the waste, the place where the trash, the place where the manure exited the city headed towards the valley of Hinnom. You see, there's no special request here to put the government officials on the the visible part of the walls or the easy part of the walls. No, these men recognize that God's work needs everyone. And they're willing to serve wherever it is that they need to serve. There's no doubt that these men had unique gifts. They had unique talents. They had unique callings that were given by God. And yet they didn't use those as an excuse. They did what needed to be done. And in doing so, they model for us servant leadership. And who comes to mind when you think about servant leadership? Jesus comes to mind. Can't help but think about our Savior. You know, sometimes we call the incarnation that time when 
Christ becomes flesh. The season that we're about to celebrate this next month, we call the incarnation, Jesus' humiliation. And the Westminster divines, these men in the 17th century who sat and wrestled with what God's Word teaches, they devoted five questions in the Catechism to Christ's humiliation. Let me read just a couple. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? This is the historical document. These are the standards of theology that we as Presbyterians cling to. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition where for our sakes He emptied Himself of His glory. He took upon Himself the nature of a servant in His conception and birth, His life and death until His resurrection. And it goes on. How did Christ humble Himself in His conception and birth? Being from all eternity the Son of God, He was made of a woman of low estate. How did He humble Himself in His life? He subjected Himself to the law. He conflicted with the indignities of our world, the infirmities of our flesh. How did Christ humble Himself in His death? Well, he felt and bore the wrath of God. And he himself was conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness. And it goes on and on speaking about Christ's humiliation for us, for the honor of God's name. Christ humbled himself that we might humble ourselves. So as we look at this first profile, we ask ourselves, are we like our Savior, like these men, are we willing to put aside our perceived rights, our reputation, in order to make sure that God's work, whatever it is, gets done? In order that this message of humiliation for undeserving sinners goes out into all the world because God's work needs everyone. As we move to the next profile, we looked at Eliashib. As we move to the next profile in God's work, how different Eliashib and his brothers are from these nobles of Tekoa. The nobles of Tekoa that we read about in verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew says that they wouldn't put their necks They wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. They were too proud. The work was too mundane. It was too beneath them to get involved. And so they refused these leaders of Tekoa. But the people of Tekoa, the people of Tekoa that are mentioned in our list, we learn about them in verse 5. And then again in verse 27 where it says the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Maybe they were embarrassed by their leaders and the lack of leadership from their town, so they went above and beyond. They fixed one wall and then went and fixed another wall. So they're in this list twice. And these were men, these were men that, that weren't even from Jerusalem. 
They didn't even live in this city. They'd left their homes. They'd left their own work, the work that needed to be done in Tekoa. They left the comfort and safety that was there in order to do this back-breaking work under the threat of attack and opposition because they knew that this was God's work and they knew that God's work needed everyone. And so they challenge us. What is our attitude concerning being inconvenienced in our own lives? Does the vision of God so capture us that we are willing to put aside our personal comforts in order to see God's work carried through? When I was in college, I worked during my summer breaks on a construction site for a local contractor up in Linden. And I had never worked construction before, so wasn't very good. I knew how to swing a hammer. I knew how to pick up scraps of wood, and I certainly got plenty of practice making trips to the lumber store for things that these guys needed. And one summer we worked on a house from top to bottom, laid the foundation all the way through finishing the house. And I love to drive by that house in Linden. Pointed out to my kids. Guess what, kids? Dad built that house. Dad built that house. And of course, I don't have the skill set to build a house. But I did help build that house. You know, I've already mentioned that Nehemiah isn't mentioned in this list. Notice who else is not mentioned. Where are the stonemasons? Where are the brick builders? Where are the carpenters? Perhaps they're there. I bet they are there. But they're not mentioned. Instead, we read about Uziel, the goldsmith. Our resident carpenter laughs at that. Perfect. On cue. Uziel, the goldsmith. Hananiah, the perfumer. Oh, they're not messing with precious metal today and lovely smells, no. They're hauling rocks. And they're making a stink all their own as they sweat on the walls of Jerusalem. But don't you see the picture they give us? They someday were going to drive past this wall. Not drive, walk. They were going to walk past this wall and they were going to point it out to their kids. I built this wall. I built this. Dad, you're a perfumer. No, this is my wall. I built this wall. Now God has made up His church of of many members forming one body. We all can't be feet. We all can't be hands. But sometimes we, we hide behind our spiritual gift inventories and we say, well, that's just not my gift. That's just not my calling. And you know what? It may not be. But it may not matter. There may come a time where it just doesn't matter. The need is there. You need to fill it. 
And maybe you're not as well trained as someone else in that area, but they're not here. What are you going to do? God's work needs to be done. Uziel and Hananiah weren't giving up their jobs. They weren't giving up their callings. This was a short-term, immediate need that needed their attention, and they were going to do it. And I think there's something for us as the church of Jesus to learn here. Well, how about some more guys? How about Rephaia and Shalom in verses 9 and 10? Rephaia and Shalom. Judah was divided into five districts, each with its own ruler. The city of Jerusalem, because of its size and population, was actually divided into two districts. These were government officials, Rephaia and Shalom. They were men of power. We don't know specifically what they did on the wall, but they were working on the wall. Like the priests, like Melchijah, they were there. And it brings to mind those those post-Katrina photo ops that we see of our president or our governors or some other elected official walking around looking at devastation and, and how out of place they look in their Armani suits wondering, when, are, when am I going to get to return to my air-conditioned car? See, this was no photo op for these rulers. God's people were coming together to do what needed to be done God's work was everyone's work. And Shalom took this a a step further. Remember, this is a construction site. This was back-breaking, hard labor, manly work, right? But Shalom, the ruler, he doesn't have any sons. But there's work to be done. So you know what, girls? We're going to work construction today. And there are his daughters. I'm sure they got some looks. They might have even gotten some jeers, but God's work needs everyone. Well, one more name out of this big list of names, Malchijah. This is a different Malchijah than the one I already mentioned. We learn about this Malchijah in verse 11. Malchijah, the son of Harim and Hasab, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Now, if this is all that we had about Malchijah, about this Malchijah, it wouldn't be much. But turn back with me just for a moment to the end of Ezra. Ezra is the book that precedes Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. This is the same, around the same time of history. Ezra is calling God's people to repentance. He's calling them to return to the ways of the Lord. Particularly, he's calling men who have disobeyed God explicitly by marrying foreign women. So if we look in Ezra chapter 10, verses, let's begin at verse 10, and I'll jump around a little bit. Verse 10, And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and have married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. 
Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of this land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one or two, one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. And so they asked the officials to gather these men up. Jump down to verse 18. All the men are there. These are the offenders. Now there were some, verse 18, there were some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Jump down to verse 31. Of the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah. There's our Malkijah. Ezra chapter 10. Now what's the significance of this? What could this teach us? Well, here's Malkijah. He has sinned grievously. He has been set apart by the leadership of God's people. He has been disciplined and rebuked publicly for the error of his ways and called to return to the Lord. And here he is. Here he is working away. Doing God's work. As one commentator so well said, past failures do not prohibit or inhibit present grace. You see, the fact, two things, the fact that God uses broken people for His work, coupled with the fact that Malkijah didn't walk away. He didn't walk away disgruntled, upset at church leadership for calling him back to the ways of God. No, he humbled himself and he got to work. How easy it is for us, for me, to get discouraged in my weakness, in my brokenness, and how easily church discipline can sinfully feed our pride and cause our hearts to become hard rather than having its intended effect at bringing us back to the Lord. Malkijah reminds us that God's work needs everyone. This morning, through Nehemiah chapter 3, I want you to Rejoice in the diversity of God's people. Rejoice in the humbling of God's people to do God's work. It's a model for us in the church. And what was it that drove them? What was it that united them to this one task amidst their diversity? Some worked on doors. Some worked on gates. Some worked on walls. Some worked on towers. Some worked individually. Some worked with their families. Some worked with their neighbors. Some worked at the the space right in front of their homes. Some worked in a place that was far from their home. But they all worked for the Lord. And they all were united around the Lord's work. See, this is the Old Testament church. And Jesus prayed for this kind of unity among his followers. 
In John 17, 22, he prays to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And of course, Paul appealed to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so what do we take from all this? Well, I hope that you have been encouraged as you've looked at some of these profiles of God's work and encouraged about how God uses His people and not their particular giftedness so much. There are other passages that will take us to particular giftedness. No, but on hearts willing to serve, eager to serve, eager to do what needs to be done for the sake of the Gospel. There isn't one magical approach to serving the Lord, but we are all called to pour out our lives. To give our lives away for the sake of the gospel. Our vision here at Ascension Presbyterian Church, our vision at Cross Point Church is this, bringing the gospel of grace and mercy to the world. One neighborhood at a time. This message this morning is not a call for you to quit your job and work full-time for the church. We might let you do that if you want to. But I'm not calling you to that. It's a call to be about God's business. Here in the church, as you work next to Him, next to her, next to them, You notice that's the title of our sermon today, Next to Him. All of us are called to work in the church. Some of us will be called to a land far from home. Some of us will be called to work in the home. All of us will be stretched in ways that we had not anticipated or ways that we had not even hoped for. But too easily we let pride, we let professionalism, we let individualism, we let busyness, we let laziness, we let fear of man, or we let a host of other excuses prevent us from doing God's work. God's Word reminds you this morning, God's work needs everyone, requires everyone's attention, and so unite yourselves around this vision of the gospel and work as unto the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to just get a small snapshot of these servants, your servants, many of whom gave up much in order to center themselves upon what you were doing in the world. 
Father, we want to be a church that reflects this picture of the church. We want to be a church that is so captivated by the gospel of reconciliation through Jesus our Lord that everything that we are about and everything that we do is focused on what you're doing and allowing ourselves to be used in whatever way you see fit to accomplish your purposes in us, both individually as well as in, fa- as well as in families, as well as corporately as a family of God, as a church body. Oh, Father, give us wisdom into these things. Holy Spirit, guide us as we talk, as we wrestle, as we think about how these words specifically apply and challenge us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.